Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the news section. I'm your host, Dr. Jack West. Joining me on this episode is Dr. Daniel Boffa, Professor and Division Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Yale University. Together, we will be discussing biological and molecular staging as a dimension beyond size-based staging in non-small cell lung cancer. Dr. Boffa, thank you for joining me today. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks, Jack. I I look forward to uh, talking with you. Excellent. So, You've done work on how our staging system for non-small cell lung cancer could be refined by using more detailed pathology findings to identify which patients do and don't benefit as much from adjuvant chemotherapy. What do you envision for an optimal future staging system in lung cancer in terms of what it incorporates that isn't included? So I think that the stage classification system is a great framework of language to communicate the anatomic aspects of cancer. And that is based on prognostic implications. And I think that as we've learned more and more about different anatomic attributes, we've radically refined our ability to stratify prognosis And the staging nomenclature is a great context to organize patients to to study apples and apples and compare oranges to oranges so that we're all speaking about the same patient populations. I think that when you start talking about a system or a model to determine who will benefit from various types of treatment, that becomes more of a predictive framework. And there's a lot of uh, entanglement between prognostic and predictive. I think the really the first question is, what are we asking adjuvant therapy to do? And I think at its core, the, the uh, adjuvant therapy, we're asking it to alter the natural history of subclinical residual disease burden meaning it's subclinical, it's not detected by imaging or other modalities, and it's residual, meaning after uh, local therapy, it's left behind. And so there's two assumptions to that. Number one is that the patient that we're talking about actually has this subclinical residual disease burden. If they didn't, there really is no role for adjuvant therapy. And the second is that the additional therapy is going to decrease the likelihood that that residual disease burden is going to compromise the patient's survival. And so the stage classification system, uh, the anatomic attributes have been used to identify from a prognostic standpoint who might benefit. So the patients who have a higher chance of having this subclinical disease burden after surgery are those that have lymph node metastases, those that have larger tumors, and those that have different histopathologic features. And so that informs who. Where we have less information is the how, what specific uh, treatment modality is going to kill the residual cancer. 
So we specifically have done work on looking at the relationship between strict anatomic attributes such as size with histopathologic attributes such as high-risk features, um, including lymphovascular invasion, pore differentiation, and uh, visceral pleural invasion. And finally, with treatment nuances, because depending on how you're treated, that may impact the likelihood you have a subclinical residual disease burden. For instance, uh, sublobar resection in some patients may leave them with a subclinical residual disease burden, either in the lymph nodes or even within the parenchyma. So in our uh, in a, a recent study uh, looking in the National Cancer Database, we tried to disentangle uh, these three components and, and what we found is they actually are interrelated and that the likelihood of patients benefiting from adjuvant chemotherapy uh, were correlated with the simultaneous uh, consideration of size, histopathologic features, and how they were treated. And so for, uh, for tumors that were greater than five centimeters, irrespective of the presence or absence of histopathologic uh, high-risk features, chemotherapy was associated with a better prognosis than observation. In tumors that were less than four centimeters, chemotherapy really only seemed to help if you had a wedge resection, and that's for tumors three to four centimeters. And in the four to five centimeter uh, group, which was about half of our patients, in the uh, uh, in the three to f- in the four to five centimeter group, they really only benefited if there was at least one high risk feature. So, we believe that uh, we took uh, uh, staging uh, information that correlated to anatomic attributes. We combined it with histopathologic uh, characterization, and as well as as treatment. I think if you try to do all of that with the stage uh, nomenclature, it gets really complicated. And so I'm, I'm a staging uh, minimalist. And so I would say the, the refinement of the staging nomenclature should really focus on prognosis, not as much on predictive guidance and, and have separate frameworks to predict who is going to respond to treatment and not. So I should say that uh, there is an ongoing staging project that IASLC is central in, and people can find that at the IASLC.org website and search for staging or send an email to staging at IASLC.org to learn more. This is a constantly evolving field, but we've had data over the years that have showed that other factors like lymph node yield, and other factors looking at, say, the, the quality or the thoroughness of the surgery, you know, along the lines of a sublobar resection are associated with prognosis, but those have not been integrated into staging up to this point. I don't know that they're that complicated that you couldn't do that, but do you envision that that's, that could fly or is there just a certain level of complexity that that a staging system collapses under the weight of that keeps it from being integrated, you know, widely practiced? I think that's a great question. It's where does, do you get diminishing returns on utility with the expense of complexity? And uh, certainly a stage one lung cancer that was managed with a lobectomy 
has a very different prognosis than a stage one lung cancer that's managed with pneumonectomy. And, and that is not just a, at the whim of the practitioner, a pneumonectomy requiring cancer has different prognostic implications than a lobectomy amenable cancer. It gets a little bit fuzzier when the surgical team elects to perform a a surgical procedure in which more than one was appropriate, such as a sublobar resection in somebody who could have had a lobectomy or sublobar resection. But we know that there are different, dramatically different prognostic implications across socioeconomic strata, across uh, ethnicities, across uh, different parts of the world. And I think that the it's unlikely that we are going to have a prognostic framework that is going to accurately estimate the prognosis for every patient. I think that the framework is really is really a starting point, not the finishing point. And, and it's up to the individual practitioner to try to interpret patient-specific nuances uh, to determine where they fall relative to these survival estimates. But I can tell you in esophageal cancer, the staging uh, nomenclature was, was was really refined in in the seventh uh, uh, edition, and it's really complicated. And even though you're getting much more distinct curves, I think you do sacrifice some utility. You risk utility at the expense of with with increasing complexity. You can even look at how we don't use a staging system in any sophisticated way for small cell. I mean, that has, there is a TNM staging system that is essentially ignored in favor of a functional limited versus extensive for years and years. And people have really just kind of voted with their feet that there isn't enough incremental benefit to a more refined system to actually uh, apply it in practice. Absolutely. And I think to your point, until there is uh, until the key information that oncology teams rely on to make treatment decisions aligns with staging nomenclature, people are going to revert to what they know and what has worked. And so if if all of the limited stage uh, patients fall into the same rough category, irrespective of the TNNM, and if the treatment is the same, then people are going to reduce things to their simplest uh, form. But if there was a true uh, sense of stratification of what's the right thing to do for a T1A small cell um, that was distinctly different from a, an N2 positive small cell, then I think it would really push us to, uh, to embrace that nomenclature. But until until the nomenclature is tied to a treatment defining information, it's it's tough to push its adoption. But I do think there is more and more data that's looking at small cell in a stage stratified way. Um, but it uh, it drives me crazy in our tumor board, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I, it, it's a great point that it really needs to be tied to some what do you do with this information? If it's just esoterica, people don't apply it. But uh, but I'm interested as well. We are getting more data, more publications about molecular profiling, 
offering an ability to refine prognosis, which is very uh, understandable that, that we know that in advanced disease that there's huge differences based on molecular features of the tumors, and it's pretty crude to just go by size and lymph node involvement. There's some proxies there, but, uh, but it doesn't have the refinement of the, uh, the molecular features of a cancer that we are seeing all the time have, have an impact. And, and as well, though the data are limited, they've been re- very consistent with factors like circulating tumor DNA presence or circulating tumor cells in a post-operative setting, predicting who's most likely to relapse and, and kind of by implication, who's going to benefit most from adjuvant therapy, although we haven't clearly shown that you can alter their course. Do you envision that in the coming years, those will be routinely integrated into staging systems? Because at least these can be kind of plugged in as a routine test and they're not conceptually difficult. I guess they would need to show that they change outcomes. But but what's your view on these kind of biological factors? Well, I, I think this is the area that's really the most exciting because a patient comes to you not wanting to know what happens on average or what is generally more or less likely to occur. They really want to know what's going to happen to them. And in the molecular profiling, I think we get more of a personalized estimate of what treatment uh, could impact each individual patient. And I think from a biomarker standpoint, there's biomarkers that are prognostic and there are biomarkers that are predictive. And the prognostic biomarkers don't have to necessarily uh, correlate with mechanism. The, the, the field of biomarker research generally has accepted that there's a difference between correlation and causation, and that if something's correlated, that might be useful, even though um, it's not depicting the mechanism uh, behind an association. And so there are several molecular attributes that make sense uh, as far as predicting uh, um, the efficacy of treatment. So again, if if you were able to identify who needed treatment um, using whatever framework, uh, either clinical, be it nodal status or histopathologic, but if you were comfortable that you had identified somebody who who was likely to have a um, subclinical residual disease burden, the next question is how to treat them. And there are several, you know, there's uh, thymidylate synthase, uh, which is a part of the folate pathway. So drugs that uh, interact with the folate pathway, uh, such as 5-FU or pemetrexid, there is a correlation with the levels of uh, thymidylate uh, synthase and uh, likelihood of responding, uh, particularly in vitro, but there are some in vivo um, there is some in vivo evidence. I think ERCC1 is, uh, there's some, some uh, thought that this has some correlation with uh, res- uh, response to cytotoxic chemotherapy, particularly uh, platinum-based therapies. There are also some, uh, some in vitro chemosensitivity and resistance assays, um, taking tumors and co-culturing them with various agents at least as of a couple of years ago, when ASCO sent out a, uh, a consensus statement, there, there was no, uh, the conclusion was 
that there was no definitive uh, evidence to, to support that as a routine incorporation into clinical practice. But I think all of us have had patients in whom a, a treatment was identified that wasn't intuitive through one of these uh, chemotherapy chemo, uh, sensitivity assays. And, and there's also uh, combinations of molecular um, markers. Um, I know that uh, the group in uh, a couple of groups in Texas, I think it was UT Southwestern and MD Anderson had a 12 gene uh, signature. There was a 10 gene signature that uh, they're typically identified by um, DNA mapping and uh, doing network analysis and coming up with these signatures that are prognostic and at times uh, predictive. So I do think that there is a real potential to use molecular profiling to, to, to both understand who is at high risk to harbor a subclinical um, residual disease after uh, local therapy and, and to potentially identify how they should best be treated based on uh, a particular uh, tumor's uh, biology. The, the cell-free DNA is really interesting. That, you know, that's an area where we, we have a lot of interest and I think with that, that gives you, that's a slightly different lens because not only is it an, a singular um, reflection of what's going on in the tumor, it has the potential to give real-time evaluation of what's happening. You could look quantitatively to see um, as a marker of response to cytotoxic chemotherapy, do they clear or not clear the, the DNA? But also you can, you can get a better sense of mechanisms of resistance. So I do think there's a, there's a particular uh, future for circulating uh, cell-free DNA. That's great. And I, I look forward to these tools becoming part of our routine practice and improving that. I'd like to pivot to talk about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic. It's led to a marked decrease in screening studies for many different cancers, including lung cancer, certainly. And for a while, there was also a curbing of what we perceived as elective surgeries, or at least the ones that are not especially time sensitive, maybe an early lung cancer. The COVID-19 risk, however, is not decreasing over time. And in fact, it's been an escalating concern recently across the country and in many places around the world. And it's not, not a temporary issue where we can hold out for things to get back to normal. How are you at Yale dealing with the pandemic and pursuing cancer workups and treatments uh, for patients with lung nodules, masses, and diagnosed cancer? Are there limitations relative to where things were before the pandemic, or are you now kind of back to compensating for that just with more spatial distancing? Well, I would say that we've handled it uh, differently in the two surges that uh, we've experienced. Our first surge was April and May. And at that time, uh, the week prior to the real uh, increase in slope of our uh, trajectory, um, we, across uh, the cancer service line, we had had two patients in a single week become uh, infected with COVID during their hospitalization for cancer surgery. And so when that happened, and that was across all of the, uh, the different types of cancer surgery, and, and 
over that weekend, we decided we needed to do something radically different. And we created something we call the COVID minimal uh, cancer surgery pathway, where we mapped out every single step that a patient took from garage to discharge and isolated those people from the people, uh, space, and materials that could transmit the infection. And so we had plexiglass over the OR corridors. They had their own recovery room, their own floor, the, the cancer patients. And so during the, the two months that followed um, that weekend, we peaked at about 45% of the patients in the hospital were COVID positive and we didn't have a single patient become um, uh, infected. And so, so we became quite confident that, that using really a culmination of best practices, uh, screening of both COVID testing and uh, symptom and temperature testing of patients and staff, actually of our high risk encounters that we prevented, half of them were staff related people that were found to have a temperature or found to have symptoms on screening. So it really is a 360 approach. Um, but so we became quite confident that we could continue to offer cancer surgery, even as uh, the pandemic was surging. And that, that the results of that are coming out uh, in December in annals of surgery. Is, this surge is a little different in that there's so much more testing and we're, that we're really able to keep uh, parts of the hospital COVID minimal um, uh, in, a, in a different way. And so right now, um, at least at this, at this uh, on 11-23-2020, we, um, we are allowing all cancer surgeries to uh, proceed. Um, and elective surgeries, which a lot of them are outpatient, are happening in different space um, in, in outpatient uh, facilities. But the, there definitely has been an impact of staging uh, and sc- sorry of uh, screening. And people weren't going to their physician. Their physician usually is what prompts that physician visit prompts either a symptomatic or asymptomatic person to be imaged. And then there's a couple of month lag. Uh, so I think there's going to be a real impact of the pandemic on cancer and cancer outcomes. But I will say for lung cancer in particular, we really tried to keep uh, the process moving um, as much as possible. Do you see where you are in the future or potentially among your colleagues who are in other parts of the country that have been hit really hard where there's there's no beds in, in parts of the Midwest or various uh, parts of the country where the surge is raging, where it's not feasible to do the non-COVID medical care because there aren't beds, there aren't ventilators, there's no, there's just no safe space. And we might be paying the price a few months down the line because patients with resectable or locally advanced lung cancers can't get this managed in a timely way just out of these resource considerations. Absolutely. I, I think that the the pandemic has has shown so many uh, of the things that are are great about uh, the really the global healthcare community. And uh, when when the pandemic was 
really uh, revealing itself to be a global problem of previously uh, uh, unrecognized scale and scope. The, the, um, the Commission on Cancer uh, reached out to myself and uh, Valerie Roosh and uh, a group of surgeons that are the Thoracic Outcomes Research Network, uh, which is about 40 surgeons or so, and charged us with coming up with triage guidelines that basically uh, structure the decision-making that you're outlining. What do you do with a stage one cancer that you are in an environment? Because it's, it's a global problem with local solutions. And you really have to make decisions based on what's happening in your environment at, at, at your moment in time and, and to try to balance the risk of treatment and the risk of delay. And so fortunately for lung cancer, we do have alternatives that may have, uh, depending on the environment, less uh, exposed patients to less risk. Um, the, we have non-surgical treatments such as uh, um, stereotactic uh, ablative radiosurgery. We, we do have uh, radiofrequency ablation and we do have uh, induction chemotherapy protocols uh, for people that have more advanced uh, cancers. I, the Commission on Cancer understands their, their role in trying to disentangle the various risks of different forms of treatment, because just routing somebody away from the risks of surgical treatment towards the risks of being on chemotherapy during COVID, uh, we can't make those decisions blindly. And, and the Commission on Cancer uh, and several state tumor registries have really uh, take ownership for this, uh, for this cause and have started collecting COVID-specific uh, data fields Unfortunately, there, there is a lag in getting data, but I do think that we are going to be infinitely better prepared in the not-too-distant future should we be faced with a similar challenge to at least understand how the various treatments, the risk of various treatments are impacted uh, during, uh, during an era when COVID is so prevalent. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the arguably positive developments in the pandemic has been our use of telemedicine increasingly, born out of necessity, uh, with people staying home as much as feasible. And we've had the, the hardware and the bandwidth and, and really the capacity to do this, but we needed the, uh, the catalyst for it. And, and that's certainly feasible in many aspects of medicine. Much of our more routine visits in medical oncology can feasibly be done this way, though not necessarily an infusion. And, and certainly the surgery is something that you need to be there uh, with the patient, at least uh, in 2020. I think robotic surgery may change that in the more distant future. But are you using telemedicine for preoperative and postoperative visits now? And if so, do you see this as something that has worked well enough to continue to use it beyond a point of necessity born out of the pandemic? Yeah, I think that we we are using a lot of telemedicine. I would say I'm using it often, but not using it to its full capacity. I think that um, the, the, the biggest concern in the surgical community was, are you not going to be able to do an eyeball test on patients in terms of fitness for surgery? 
And in all honesty, I've not been surprised. I haven't had somebody show up the day of surgery the first time I'm meeting them and been really surprised that they were a different person um, than I had pictured them to be in terms of their fitness and their uh, candidacy for surgery. That that was a big concern that you you know you're just not going to get a true sense of of somebody's um, health that beyond what can be. Uh, depicted in in a list of medical problems, so that that really hasn't um, panned out. Where I'm struggling is, I'm I like drawing pictures for patients, and I know there are platforms where you could uh, you can draw, and I just haven't been doing that. And and I love to go through images uh, with patients, and and I haven't been, uh, and I know our our uh, our particular platform allows you to do that. I think that. The pandemic has really, um, it's been a incredibly busy time for different reasons throughout the pandemic. And when, it, when I get a chance, I, I hope I get a chance to take full advantage of the, the positive things that the pandemic has brought. Because I think that, that, that telemedicine is here to stay. Um, and it's, it's for in, in many circumstances, not all circumstances, it is actually a page, a patient centered, uh, approach and they feel more comfortable in their own environment. They may have people around them that they wouldn't have otherwise, uh, that can help them in shared decision-making they're more relaxed. And, um, so I do think there are a lot of positives to telemedicine, there are very few negatives that are intrinsic to that platform. It's not as effective in my hands, but I put that on myself uh, more than I do uh, the telemedicine uh, uh, platform. Lastly, I wanted to talk about neoadjuvant therapy, which you brought up as particularly potentially appealing to defer the intervention of, of surgery, kind of kick it a few months into the future, at least early on, the hope was that these would be very short-lived surges and, and a few weeks or months later, we'd be in a better position. That hasn't quite happened, obviously. But, but meanwhile, neoadjuvant therapy has only been gaining momentum, particularly around immunotherapy-based approaches in uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And there have been some really encouraging data here but when I entered the field a couple of decades ago, this was a little before adjuvant chemotherapy had really gained a clear toehold, and it was kind of a race between neoadjuvant and adjuvant, and the success of the adjuvant trials largely killed off the enthusiasm around neoadjuvant. But one of the concerns about neoadjuvant was the reluctance, uh, at least uh, not clearly stated as much as speculated that surgeons may be reluctant to have a patient who's a candidate for the OR next week to go off, potentially have complications and no longer be a candidate for surgery due to severe side effects or progressing disease. What's your view about the broad feasibility of neoadjuvant therapies you know, I, I don't think it's going to be based on a platform of chemo alone as much as neoadjuvant or, or I'm sorry, of uh, immunotherapy 
targeted therapies potentially. And do you think that this would have broad buy-in by uh, rank and file surgeons, including some who are not dedicated thoracic surgeons, but cardiothoracic, even general surgeons? It's a, it's a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a critically important topic and it's a bit of a complex one. So I, I'll just, the easy things are what is known. So I would say that it's, I, I would be comfortable saying that if you felt that a patient needed chemotherapy, they are more likely to comply, receive all of the scheduled intended doses in the preoperative setting than they are in the postoperative setting. I think that's been shown pretty consistently. I think it's, it is certainly possible to operate after neoadjuvant therapy and achieve risk profiles uh, or achieve, uh, achieve results that are very similar to uh, patients that did not receive uh, neoadjuvant therapy. So I don't think neoadjuvant is, is an absolute in terms of uh, resulting in increased uh, complications. I think that theoretically, we had, I had mentioned that the, the role of adjuvant therapy is in patients who have a subclinical residual disease burden. The one thing that nobody likes to talk about is, is it possible that that subclinical residual disease burden is the result of local therapy, meaning they didn't actually have a subclinical disease burden until we manipulated their tumor? That's a tough question. And certainly we know that that even if you take the vein first, there are patients who have circulating tumor cells. And wouldn't it be, could, there's a theoretical advantage to knocking a tumor down prior to surgery that if all things being equal, there's that, I think that's a theoretical advantage. So I think the efficacy of neoadjuvant and adjuvant are very similar. I think that if you're using a stage-based approach to make chemotherapy decisions, your most accurate staging is after surgery. Uh, as opposed to before surgery. And if you really think they're going to benefit from therapy, they're more likely to get it in the new, all that you plan in the new adjuvant setting. So I think there's no clear winner. I'm very comfortable with new adjuvant therapy. I spend a fair bit of time uh, in the esophageal cancer world as well. And um, that's, uh, that's by and large our norm. So I, I do think that uh, there, there are certain certain appealing aspects of neoadjuvant therapy, I think you do have to gauge the patient and their likelihood of having their surgical candidacy affected. But to your point about the newer agents, you know, a lot of people, uh, especially in the surgical community, don't have a great appreciation for response to therapy. And, and in, the, the, um, in the cytotoxic chemotherapy world, it's not like we're talking about 90% response rates. You know, I think that many of the stage four trials and some of the stage three trials, the response rates to cytotoxic chemotherapy and non-small cell, I think a 30% average is not unreasonable. Now, some of the more uh, recent 
targeted trials or uh, than a deemed trial for immunotherapy are showing uh, response rates that are shockingly higher. Uh, you know, I mean, there's 80% in, I think the deem was around 80. So that may change the landscape uh, somewhat, particularly if, if preoperative cyto reduction could facilitate uh, surgery. So I think it's a great question. It's, it's a really important one. I would just frame it by saying that safe surgery is certainly possible after induction therapy the efficacy seems to be similar, but you're, you're less likely to get all of the attended doses after surgery, but you're probably most accurately aligning people that need it with those uh, that, that actually get therapy if you treat in the adjuvant setting. And the, the newer agents in the new adjuvant setting, I think it's a question that's not uh, answerable right now, but the response rates are really encouraging. Well, and one other big advantage of the neoadjuvant approach is that you get information in that window of opportunity of how your therapy worked in a way that you're treating blind in the adjuvant setting. So I think that's a that's a valuable additional insight that you that is a distinctive feature of neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. A lot to cover, uh, a lot of advances in the field, and that's that's really great to see it be so dynamic in a field where for sometimes years or, or a decade or more at a time, we don't have as much happening. But it's a very fertile ground for advances, and I hope it leads to more benefits for the outcomes for our patients. So thanks for taking the time. Jack, I could say it is always a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and I hope to talk soon. Take care. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Visit the news section on IASLC.org for more Lung Cancer Considered podcasts. And please, like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud and share them with your friends and colleagues.